Howdy! Welcome to Modern Musicology. We are here tonight talking about the Beatles. Brand new documentary, Get Back. Rob, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Ashley, what's going on? Uh, not much. Uh, I've been spending the last few days watching uh, eight and a half hours of uh, uh, Beatles footage. So that's uh, that's what I've been doing mostly the last little bit. And you're on a rewatch. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, I'm starting. Uh, I'm trying to. I was wanting to rewatch a little bit of it. Uh, yeah, I didn't get very far in, but uh, <laughs> I did. I did rewatch some. Yeah, <clears throat> I wanted. I wanted to be able to rewatch, but I just. I have not had the opportunity to yet. Okay, so we are going to dive right in. Brand new documentary, Beatles Get Back. Um, we've been waiting a long time for this. Uh, Peter Jackson has been working on this for about the past four years. It was first announced a couple of years ago. It was supposed to be out last year, got pushed back to this year. It was supposed to be a theatrical release. It got turned into a basically a mini series on Disney Plus. And we finally have it. Um, so without getting too detail yet, what are your uh, initial thoughts about this? What were your reactions to it? So I I love this. It's it's uh, I, I was thinking back to uh 25 just about 25 years ago and we had the anthology and it was over thanksgiving weekend and so yeah. we had this this new kind of three-day beatles event uh yeah. kind of <clears throat> almost to the day uh 20 26 years or, or whatever that is uh 24 i guess um i can do math uh but it was uh <laughs> super uh it was uh it was super cool to kind of experience this uh, in that way, it, it, it took me back uh, to that time. And at that time, they, they did talk about Let It Be. And it was, you know, those two or three uh, pieces that have kind of become notorious, the, the Paul George argument and a few other things. Right. And, and that's kind of what, what we've known about this. And it really, the, the cool thing, and I know, I know we're going to talk about this, is this changes a narrative. We don't mm. get to see that in many history, historical right. things ever. But especially with music uh, and things like that, that we think we know everything, and we truly do not in this case. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Rob, what'd you think of it? <sighs> um, first of all, I think this is a textbook for people that are in bands right now that use technology to learn how to make records without technology. <clears throat> I think it's like a, for in terms of being a historical document of like, this is how people make records, kids, right? Um, and I think that it's interesting because in most cases, the dynamics of the band are exactly as we thought they were. Uh, and sometimes they weren't, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. So. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. And uh, one of the big things that I discovered from this <clears throat> is that you have to see the entire thing. Like each part kind of works on its own, but you really like part one is good, but part one makes so much more sense and seems so much more important when you see how the whole thing ends. Um, you know, it's interesting that this whole thing was one month and they only had January of that year to do all this because they had just wrapped up the white album. George was in America in December and uh, Ringo was due to start shooting his uh, next movie, which was The Magic Christian, if I remember rightly, Correct. Um, on at the beginning of February. So they only had January <clears throat> and they didn't know what they wanted. They were going to be doing. Was it going to be a television special? Was it going to be a film? Was it going to be a live concert? Was it going to be recording a new album? And so they're doing this stuff 
starting pretty much from scratch with, you know, and their trajectory changes as they go. And it's a fascinating thing to watch happen. Mm-hmm. What One thing that amazes me about that is the amount, uh, you know, when you think about story structure, you think about foreshadowing and these things oh, and the, uh, the amount of mm-hmm. foreshadowing that occurs in those first 20 minutes. Uh, to the point where that maybe we were we we'll just play outside somewhere. It'll be awfully cold. Uh, I know. You know yeah. Who's that? Uh, what? Who's that uh, pianist that plays with uh, with uh, Ray Charles? Right. And there's like all these bits of foreshadowing that happens that you would write into a story <laughs> that yeah. happens in real life. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It was so interesting that, you know, they kept talking about um, this, this song would sound great with a piano part or whatever. And, you know, well, how do we do that? Well, we should add a, we should add a fifth member to the band. John was big on wanting a fifth member of the band. And I tell you, I was waiting for the moment that Billy Preston walks into the studio and part two in he walks they, they're like, hey, how's it going? Would you like to play on a couple of songs? By the way, you're going to end up on the album. It was so And, you know, these... Okay, well, let's back up a little bit. Um, part one, they really come into this with practically nothing. You know, they've got some song ideas. Um, George has got a couple of things. There's, there's not really anything that they're starting with. They create this album in the studio during this month period. And I just think it's a fascinating thing to watch. What I thought was really interesting, and, and Alan, you kind of uh, threw some of this out here. They would have an idea and they're like, oh, that'd be cool. Let's play outside. They kind of put it away and they, they try to like be more clever than they need to be almost. And then they go back to, they just go back to doing what the Beatles do, right? And when they bring in Billy, Billy <clears throat> Preston, it goes back. It, it's it's a really great throwback to this is a band that grew up liking American black music, mm-hmm. right? And it made perfect sense. And it's interesting how you know, despite how they push the limits with track recordings and overdubs and recording studio techniques and things, yeah. right? They still went back to the basics of yeah. what made them a great. I, I use the word bar band in many ways, even though it's not really <laughs> appropriate, but basically just a band that just goes out and just plays and enjoys playing music. Right. And I think it's really interesting. You have these moments of tension and these really stressful moments. And then they pick up their instruments and start playing and it all goes away. And I just think that's really cool. Like, I don't think the the Beatles could just play music and not have to like do anything else. I think they probably would have made it longer. And I I think that's an interesting part about this story is, uh, we've all we all we all know that they stopped touring and and they became businessmen really essentially after uh, uh, Epstein died. Yeah, um, and you really see that in this where there's a part that re- that really struck me and it was when they kind of they're done recording and they go I'll see you tomorrow and they even reference this you know there was a time where we wouldn't see each other the next day we just we just lived with each other we just kind of lived and breathed this yeah. and, and and it really brings to the forefront that whole thing that many of them have said. You know, we moved. We moved on. We we got families. We did this. We did that. Mm-hmm. And I think that moment when I realized this was a working day for them, the same way any of us would go to work uh, to our jobs, it, it was a job. And I think that shines through pretty pretty well in this. This mm-hmm. wasn't just a. It's just their job. Yeah. Their nine to five job was being a band or yeah, eleven basically. to five or eleven right. to whatever with a scheduled lunch break and everything. <laughs> 
Yeah. I, I thought it was so interesting. What were some of the revelations that you took away from this? Uh, Get Back came out of nowhere. Nowhere. <laughs> Holy nowhere. smokes. It was amazing <laughs> to watch that song from nothing and just evolve. <clears throat> Holy cow. That was and, that was incredible. Well, and, and that kept happening. At yeah. one point, he goes, oh, I, I, I came out. I dreamed this one up this morning. It was backseat of my car. Uh, that comes out years later on Ram, I think. He, you know, people joke about Paul McCartney being this like songwriting factory, but it's like it just poured out of him. And exactly, I mean, when you get back, he's just strumming and he just starts singing. Yeah. And we're and it was like us as an audience, we saw we go, whoa, whoa, whoa! Did he just? Did he just? Is that the moment that song right existence? Right, and it was right. And it's, on, and it's on film. Yeah. It is amazing to me the birth of all this music that is important in the 20th century musical canon. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like um, it's like watching you know, I, I, it's like watching Beethoven create the Fifth Symphony, or like you know, um, watching Ellington do take the A train. You know, it's it's like you you actually get to see it happen, mm -hmm. and it's it's just like oh wait oh wait like when they when I, I'm like this is get back. This is, oh my, wow. You know, you're kind of so, you're kind of, at least for me, you're kind of so taken aback. You have to stop and recollect your thoughts, you know? Yeah. Um, and then uh, the other thing, and, and, and uh, I don't know if you were going to jump on this, Alan, but the other thing too that I thought was really interesting is they're having these conversations about the future of the band and what's going on. And it's always John and Paul going to the cafeteria mm -hmm. or John and Paul having a conversation. Yep. And it's like, uh Ringo come on I mean he felt I felt really really kind of sad for Ringo in a way but in a yeah. way then I didn't because he's the one that kind of got I uh, it's, it's interesting to me because um he had this dual life he got to like live a little more than I think the rest of them did yeah because that pressure wasn't on him but at the same time he's not involved in these decisions and they're almost dismissive of him and I just I, you know I I suspected that but I wasn't like didn't think that it was that bad you know yeah. it's like well we're going to the cafeteria and we're, you know that conversation with john and paul in the cafeteria would have went completely different if ringo's in the middle that conversation was fascinating that was one of the highlights of the whole thing for me um but about ringo i gotta tell you you know i'm a drummer i love ringo i think ringo is a great drummer i love his playing um but i'm gonna say something that i never thought i would say i watched this and i realized just how unimportant ringo was to the creation process you know i mean it's it's all you know john and paul of course but george you know pitched in some ideas here and there and got to say you know this chord structure or this chord structure or whatever ringo sat there on his drum stool and just waited until you know they're going to play the song again and then he puts a really simple beat on it and that's it and then he just sits there for another long time i was blown away now in part three i think it was where george and ringo are the first ones who get there and ringo plays for him on the piano he's playing octopus's garden and George says, oh, that's really good. Let me, you know, maybe this chord progression would be even better. And he, they kind of work out some parts. Together. I thought that was beautiful. I love that. Love and, that. And I think, you know, I think George had to fight tooth and nail because we know he did want more songwriting room. 
right? Oh, yeah. And I almost wonder if Ringo, because he's like, there's too many egos in the room, just said, you know what, I'm just going to step back. Right. Right. But yeah, I thought, you know, I never thought Ringo was super important in the creative process, but I thought he was at least, you know, um, yeah. around more and it wasn't so, yeah, you know, and I don't think they were, you know, patronizing or anything. It was just kind of like, he's our session player, you know, it was just kind yeah. of, but I will say the scenes, like there's a couple scenes where he's playing piano and he's doing some other things with musical instrument. Like he was a hell of a piano player, which mm -hmm. I did not know. And I just, mm -hmm the multi-musicianship of him, I did, I was not really aware of at that particular time. I knew yeah. eventually it was. And I, I, the other Ringo thing I think is interesting too, is just the really, you can see the relationship with Paul sort of moving closer, closer, you know, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I, I think I, I would, I would counter that argument about uh, Ringo. And I would actually say that um, while Paul was always Paul or John or, or George or whoever was saying, and this is what the argument was, right? Mm -hmm. Play it this way. I want you to play it this way. No mm -hmm. one ever told Ringo how to play it anyway. Mm -hmm. They did. They didn't comment on his, like a one time. I there were there. Did. Yeah, there was a couple um, of times, but, but mm -hmm. it was, it wasn't as straightforward as yeah. it was, uh, as it was with other people. And I think the thing is they, they just trusted Ringo yeah to do what he did. Uh, yeah. And if that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know, but that's what I think. I think that's the difference in that. Uh, and he was also just seemed to be happy to be there. He was the first one to get there every morning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and it was just, it's just, you could, you could see like that Liverpoolian work ethic uh, mm -hmm. with him and Paul to some extent, but yeah. Uh, but more so with Ringo. It's important to remember that this comes really, really close after they have finished working on the White Album. When uh, Ringo quit, he was gone for three weeks when they were working on uh, the White Album. So, you know, it's interesting to see, you know, kind of the dynamics from that point to this. I think it's really interesting. And I'm still a big Ringo fan. Well, yeah. and I, I would also say, I think something to Rob's point about the relationship with Paul uh, when they said, well, who wants to go on the roof? And he's like, I'll, I want to play on the roof. I know. Uh, Where like, George is like, like, I don't want to play on the roof. Why would I want to play on the roof? <laughs> and they and, and it was kind of like they went around. They're like, do you want to play? Do you want to play? And Ringo's like, I want to do it. Like, I, I want to do it. Ringo and, was up for it, man. Um, I, I thought that was that was kind of funny. Yeah. Another thing that really stuck out to me is, you know, we've always had <clears throat> sort of that stereotypical narrative of Yoko destroyed the Beatles. She was there the entire time because John wanted her to be there. She did nothing. She sat there with him. That's all she did. And, you know, it's funny that they had that conversation and Paul mentioned her and said, you know, years down the road, someone may say Yoko broke up the band, but, you know, he had no trouble with her. And there were those couple of times on day on the, in the part two and part three, where they're just sitting around jamming and she's like caterwauling on the microphone, whatever. And they're just having fun. They're having a blast. And there's not the tension that we have been told all this time for decades. And the funny thing is, there's always been that counter argument that Paul has had. He's like, no, that's not the way it happened. And no yeah. one really believes Paul. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's written, he's written songs about this and books about it and all this stuff. And no one believes him. And now all of a sudden, like he's kind of vindicated. Right. Exactly. That was another really interesting thing was um, in the absence of Epstein, 
there was nobody driving the ship anymore. There was nobody taking charge, and Paul had to step in and be the boss. He didn't no want to be was. the boss. He didn't want to be the boss, but no one else was doing it. And he gets a lot of flack for, you know, in some cases from the band members, but from the public for years. And none of that stuff at the end of their career would have happened had Paul not stepped in to be the, as he said, to be the, the father, the daddy. And I think that's just really interesting. Yeah. I mean, he kind of became this, this almost mogul as he walks in with his, I mean, he's got a, I mean, you, you, the room changes when he walks in for yeah. good or ill. Right. You're right. But right, uh, right. he walks in with that coat. It's flowing. He's got that beard and he comes in and sits down and then he takes it off and he becomes a beetle. Right. Yeah. Uh, th there's almost like this transformation that happens uh, as he, cause as he's, he's talking to people and he's doing his thing and then yeah. he comes in and takes it off and you still kind of see that with Paul. And when you see outtakes of him or, or mm -hmm. whatever, um, but it's, it's kind of neat to see. Um, the thing that I found most interesting was part one all takes place at uh, Twickenham Studios, um, and uh, they're they're uh, setting up for what they think is going to be a television shoot, while props are being moved in for the movie that Ringo is going to be working on in February, and uh, you can tell that not everybody wants to be there. You know, like they're doing this because they have to, and they're trying to figure out what their next project is going to be. And it's not until they move to Apple Studios that stuff starts to really click. And it's really interesting to watch the change in John. He, he's, he seems distant and aloof in part one. In parts two and three, he starts to warm up and you start to see the silly John, the really creative John. Oh, man, I loved it. Julian Lennon, was it Julian? Uh, said after this came out, he said that uh, seeing these films made him love his father again. I, I just thought that was an incredible statement. Something that re really stood out to me on uh, around that same time and the, the end of episode or the, the beginning of episode two, uh, there are kind of two things. Uh, one is you see this really human interaction between Paul and Ringo and then John. Uh, this is right before the yeah. conversation in the cafeteria. But Paul is like crying, right? I mean, he's yeah. on the verge of, of tears and, yeah. and Ringo maybe also. Yeah. And I think this is something that we maybe didn't expect uh, because, yeah. I mean, this is, you know, 10 years of their life at this point, longer than 10 years, really. Uh, and it's almost like he's losing something that he doesn't want to lose. And um, Exactly. But the other thing that I think, and maybe it's, maybe other people do remember this and I don't, is that John and Ringo turned 29 this year. Paul was uh, 27. Yeah. And George was 25. I know. These were, these, these were not people who had been doing this for a long time. These are not kids, but very young adults, uh, especially yeah. in the case of George. They are, they, are, they are young, and they're going through this. And I think the thing that I really uh, enjoyed about that second part is there's a part where they're not doing anything. And like Paul just starts climbing this rope and he's just doing <laughs> right. This. And I'm just like, yeah, they're just kids, right? They're just they're, kids. They really are. They're, 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 they still want to, uh, I, I'm not going to, I'm 40 and I'm not going to do that. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, like, uh, so, uh, but I don't think, at any point, and I don't think of them as that. I think of them as like, oh, you know, it, it, so it's kind of, I think that's an important 
lens to watch this through mm-hmm. is that yeah. they they are young. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't think of that really much going in because you always, like I had no idea Harrison was that young, for example. I'm just, you know, you always think of them sort of being older than they are because they're the Beatles and there's this whole mythos about them, right? And I think the big takeaway from this is that even, you know, five, six decades later, they still hold this like mythic stature that's really interesting. And I, mm-hmm. I really thought like when you see McCartney with his beard and he's just sitting there stroking his beard, you're like, ooh, Paul McCartney's stroking his beard. And you just, you're just like, you're like captivated. Why are you captivated by this, right? It's right. because it's the mythos of the Beatles. And you yeah. get that. And then you get these like conversations on the side that sort of just every time there's one, it peels that away to where you're like, by episode three, I think you're looking at them as human beings more than, than like this big, huge band. You know, yeah. I think I think it's it's interesting how they peel keep peeling back layers. Mm-hmm. And and everyone was that age. Even uh, yeah. Michael Lindsay Hogg, he points out he's the same mm-hmm. age. I looked it up. He's the same age as Ringo and John. So he he was twenty eight. He points that out in the movie. He says something about it. Uh, uh, George Martin is the only one of any yeah. age that is in this. Really, mm-hmm. uh, Billy Preston may be older. I don't know how old he was, but uh, but you come in and and you've got um uh jeff jeff johns i don't know how old he uh, he was but he looked uh, about the same age or younger mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. you have they're surrounded by young people yeah uh, which is there's nothing wrong with that they are they're highly talented and highly efficient yeah uh people and they do fantastic work um but i just don't think like rob like you said i don't think we think about that right there's this mythos and these people are almost gods in the industry when you think of it that way. And mm-hmm. it's hard to see them as 28, 20, 25 mm-hmm. um, and making these kinds of decisions. It's easy to see the young Beatles as being young. It's hard to see the uh, Latter-day Beatles um, yeah. thinking about them as being 28 years old. Right. Making and these th- decisions. Exactly. And I think it's important <clears throat> to remember that this is uh, January of 1970. The, the first, we, you know, we think about the, the Beatles career as being a 10 year, 11 year career, whatever. The first album comes out in 63. Mm-hmm. The first single comes out in like, I think, 62. So we're talking about an eight year span when the first single comes out to uh, some of the masterpieces that they created in the last half of their career with um, Mystery Tour and Abbey Road and and all these amazing albums that, you know, uh, progressed recording technology in a way that nothing else had. And the way that you record an album in a, in a studio, everything changed because of them. And that's a, we're talking about a seven to eight year period. That's unbelievable. It's, a, it's had 11 al- albums in that. There are 11 albums uh, mm-hmm. with what, uh, typically about 10 to 12 songs on them. Um, right. Uh, so not that many songs in the scheme of things. And it's interesting too that at the in the beginning of this, um, the point was made that they were, you know, going into this new project ideally to have a new album come out of it. And the point was made: the Beatles hadn't released a single in five months. Like that was some massive span of time, which for them it probably was because they were constantly churning out material. Mm-hmm. Five months! Oh my god! Five months! Yeah. Unbelievable! Yeah. <laughs> what are we going to do? I, you know, I'm, and, and I'm, I'm a nerd in this part. So I freely admit it. When they're in the studio 
and they clearly get a package of you know promo records or whatever. They're all they're taking turns going through the records and picking what they want. You see Lennon look at the Rolling Stones record and kind of look at it, look at it, kind of makes a face and he just sets it down. I thought that was really interesting. Mm. And you know they're going through and um, George Harrison just grabs the Smokey Robinson album like right away. It was just kind of an interesting sort of like look inside their their head, you know, yeah. which I thought was interesting. You know, I also like, and I, I'm, I'm blanking on the name now again, the, the guy who had to direct all that, uh, Hogg. Yeah. yeah. Michael Lindsay Hogg. Yeah. Uh-huh. I always forget, I keep thinking of 10 other hyphens. Um, it's a great British name. You know, he has the best lines in it. And they're not lines, but he's got the best dialogue in it. And by the end of the thing, you're like, this guy has to corral the circus. You know, it's like, wow. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking of circus, I'm glad you mentioned that word because we have this Rolling Stones project that John was involved in, that Hogg directed, that was filmed, and then never happened. And it, it that kept getting brought up like, Whatever the Rolling Stones were doing, it really seemed like maybe definitely John and maybe Paul were like, look at what they're doing. Why aren't we doing the same kind of thing, too? Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And they kept referencing Clapton, too. Like, oh, we're going to call Clapton. You know, it's like, <laughs> what happens if George doesn't come back? Oh, we'll just call Clapton. <laughs> like, please don't. So, okay. Gonna- so, George, uh, part one ends with. On, on the cliffhanger of George quitting the band. It was one of the nicest and most uh, congenial uh, splits I've ever witnessed. Like there, you didn't really see like a big blowout. You didn't, there wasn't like a big argument or anything like that. That sort of led up to it, at least as far as what we saw in get back. It's like lunchtime. And he's like, well, uh, I think I'm off. I'll see y'all around to the clubs. I think I'm going to quit the Beatles now. And you're like, what? Where did that come from? Yeah, <laughs> I think I think in that case there was a lot of things. Uh, I guess something happened off camera uh, specifically, yeah. and apparently it was it was George and John, not yes George and Paul. Yes, um, it doesn't really bring that up. I mean, it kind of does when they're reading the papers later. It does, um, yes. but but it doesn't come up immediately with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things kind of surrounding that this is inter- I've been doing some reading, and I think. A lot of people are like, well, George quit the band. There's horrible things going on. Yeah. That was also like the same week or within days of Patty leaving him. Uh, right. The, the first time. Like, right. Yeah, she, they, they make amends. But uh, so all of this is happening at the same time. And if you remember that day he quits, uh, the, uh, the guy uh, that was uh, the, the, pu- the music publisher was there. And he's mm-hmm. like, uh, and George is like, hey, thanks for the gift. And he was just like, uh, yeah, they're great for drinking or the wife might throw them at you. So there's like all of these things <laughs> yeah, happening. That's true. When when you when I mean, and it's that same day, and you know he's got to yeah. be. I mean, yeah. there's a lot going on, and it's like right. the easiest thing to do are these guys who are your friends. You know, right. when you when you're in a bad situation, you're gonna attack your friends, right? You're gonna yeah. do that. That's what happens because you know they're eventually gonna they're gonna they're gonna be okay with it eventually. I mean, it, I'm yeah. sure it's more than that, and I'm I'm putting my own spin on it. Yeah, but I think it was more than just whatever happened that day with John. But we've always heard, exactly. We've always heard so much about the arguments and, and mm-hmm. the fighting that went on and what a terrible time it was. And, you know, uh, McCartney, when this whole, when this whole project was announced, 
said, you know, the fights and the arguments were have been over-exaggerated over the years. There was also a lot of laughing and a lot of fun and a lot of lightheartedness that went on at that same time. And he was really hoping that these films would capture that. And I think it really did, particularly in parts two and three. You see so much of like, and you really see how much John and Paul love each other. You know, yeah. like um, you see, uh, there was that moment where it's just the two of them sitting at a microphone with their guitars and they're playing. And I forget what song it was that they were singing, but they were doing it with clenched teeth. Like, and they were kind of like smiling at each Two other. And it was hilarious. Two of us, yeah. And, and they were just, they were just having fun. And also, that was two of us. Yeah. It also Maybe. shocked me that like um, the rooftop concert gets pushed back for a day because of weather. So they're like basically one day away from playing on the roof and they haven't finished, you know, like all the songs yet. And they're still like in the studio just playing like Chuck Berry songs, like just horsing around and stuff. And I thought that was, I thought that was kind of eye opening. <laughs> so the whole time Michael Lindsay Hogg is trying to get them to um, decide on a venue to do this. Right. And exactly. they, they've decided, they've decided there's a scene in the second, uh, the second part where they decided to not do it. Uh, They're like, we're probably not going to do it. And then uh, they come over and someone whispers in his ear and he goes, Hey, this is a good idea. And you kind of see it happening. And then there's this scene and it might be the funniest thing I've ever seen. Uh, (laughs) They go up to the roof and it's uh, Paul. And I don't know who else, maybe Jeff Johns, someone else. And they have to pull Michael Lindsay hog up. He's like a fish. He just flops down onto the ground to the point where I had to back it up to see who it was. And I realized it's like he's never used muscles in his entire life. Um, <laughs> I miss that. When, you got to see this part. Uh, when he, he climbs up on the roof and uh, <laughs> and it was the, the strangest thing. But they're going up and they're looking at it. And, and again, you see that like Paul's like jumping around the roof and he's yeah. like jumping down here yeah. and checking it out. And it's fun to see them so vibrant. And then yeah. Michael Lindsay Hogg is just like a fish. Like they have to pick him up and pull him. And Paul McCartney's pulling Michael Lindsay Hogg up on this thing. It's hilarious. Was it Hogg <clears throat> in the first part mainly, but I think it came up in the second part too, who kept talking about, we should do this in the desert with torchlight. Dude, yes. in, let in that torchlight go. <laughs> in, but, but what he kept saying is in front of uh, uh, 500 Arabs. And he uses that word, and I'm just like, oh man, let's not, let's let's not. And then he right. does the weird Pakistani voice too, which I'm like, oh my god, you know. I didn't catch that. Yeah. Okay. Speaking <clears throat> of Pakistanis, I'm going to tell you the thing that blew me away more than anything else. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that really, you know, surprised me. The thing that really got me was that you know we saw get back from its origin through its evolution. And then they come to it and they said, you know what? We should turn this into a protest song against white supremacists. And I was like, holy smokes. And so they, he redoes the lyrics to where, you know, telling someone to get back to where you once belong is telling Pakistanis and, and other nationalities to leave and go back where you came from. Yeah where it was like basically making fun of white supremacists. And I just, I was amazed by that. I didn't know about that. I, thought I that didn't was, either. I didn't either. I was shocked. I was like, Oh, you know, I, it was interesting because I knew at that time, John was 
far more political than the rest of the oh, movies. Yeah. But it was interesting that it was like, I didn't realize it d- dipped into their music that far, you know, which I thought was interesting. Um, and the fact that they like are clearly funneling and you see this throughout the whole thing. They're funneling the outside world into what's going on in ways they didn't do before, you know, yeah. from the idea of doing a live album because they liked playing that live session to like Paul reading the article, the paper while they're playing <laughs> yeah. uh, with the voice. You know, they, they clearly are much more aware of who they are in this one mm-hmm. than, than we've seen in other things. So Right, right. And Ashley, there was one that you were you were watching it a little bit ahead of me, and there was one that you pointed out to me that uh, that he said you said make sure you watch for this. That was another thing that really really surprised me. Uh, yeah, and that was the uh, my mind's blank. I know what it is, but they were it was uh, uh, not golden Car- slumbers. Carry that uh, weight. Carry that weight was originally going to be a comedy song for Ringo to sing. Oh, Ringo. I mean, um, a completely different tempo, completely different feel. Yeah. Amazing. And that song, so, yeah, it's so, so, so different than what it uh, ended up being. Yeah. Uh, but all these little, all these little things uh, kind of come through and you see this, these versions of songs and um, mm-hmm. ideas and even songs that, you don't even uh they don't even Beatles songs like i said backseat of my car right. um I think all Teddy things Boy's must pass here. all things must pass i, lo- I uh, love oh. seeing beatles sitting around playing all <laughs> things must pass together and and this yeah. this was really interesting uh uh give me some truth uh so they're playing this and uh there's an interview with peter jackson and he's like i asked paul about that he's like i didn't help john with that song he's like yeah you did he's like no i never played it with him and he's like <laughs> He's like, I pulled my iPad out and showed him. And wow. he was just like, he was just like, I have no memory of that. And then he said, with a twinkle in his eye, he goes, good song though, huh? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> wow. But, okay. But yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I gotta, I gotta talk about George for a second. First of all, today is the 20th anniversary of his passing. Yeah. I mean, this, this documentary could not have been better timed. Um, but also, it's interesting to, to hear Beatles uh, rehearsing All Things Must Pass because at the end of the film, he says to John, you know, I only ever get like two songs per album. I've got enough material amassed right now for the next 10 Beatles albums. I should do a solo record. Um, you could tell that he was just practically out the door at that point. I mean, and it's a shame too because... I think he's one of the greatest songwriters uh, ever. And um, Here Comes the Sun, I think, is one of the greatest pop records ever written Mm -hmm. by anybody. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. And there's so much stuff that they missed out on by George not getting an opportunity to do very much in the band. And it's a shame. He's my favorite Beatle, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I found it really interesting to watch. Like, I always... Like my eyes just stayed on George pretty much the whole time just to see how he was reacting to the stuff that was going on around him. I found that really interesting. I also love the fact too, that he's the one taking the most interest in when they're filming the the documentary. He's like looking at the cameras. You kind of see him like slowly walking around looking at the camera and and things, you know, like you could tell that he's really kind of thinking outside the box. And then when Peter Sellers comes by, you know, he's kind of like, oh, it's Peter Sellers. You know, 
Right. One of the things that was interesting also, especially in that dynamic between George and Paul and John, uh, John and Paul are kind of talking and they're talking um, kind of philosophical uh, about about Hinduism and some of those things that they talked yeah. about in India when they're kind of looking back and they say something. I don't remember what they said, but it's kind of kind of slagging it off, slagging off what they had done. And George yeah. is like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, none of this matters like and you can see that like he's got he he's kind of known as the you know the mystic beetle or the spiritual beetle and mm-hmm. it, it kind of comes through there where he's kind of defending this belief system that he's developing and that does yeah. define the rest of his life and you can see it kind of like him him beginning to kind of like no 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 none of this that we're doing matters and yeah. and this and I, I thought that was interesting too and yeah um yeah to think about kind of his belief system and how the others felt about that, which is also interesting because uh, there was a, a movie that came out in on VH1 in 2000, 2000, I think, uh, called Two of Us, and it's where John and Paul uh, meet, and that is directed by Michael Lindsay Hoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, wow. There is, a, there is a scene in that movie where they, they talk about how they want to, they, they still kind of do the meditation thing, which is funny because in this movie that Michael Lindsay Hogg directs, they're like, yeah, we don't do that. You know, in 1969. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, it's 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 kind of this weird, like, uh, how well were you listening uh, to what was going on there? Right. Um, uh, I mean, it was a fictitious uh, experiment, but it was directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg. So that's where those two things connect. What are some of the other things that you uh, that really stood out to you? Maybe uh, a song or a particular performance? You know, I think it's really interesting that they finally get up to the roof. Over the past month, we've seen these songs that came from nothing and they struggle with the arrangements on them. And they're like, I don't know which way this song should go this way or this way or whatever. And and they keep like kind of putting stuff off. And well, we'll come back to that one later and whatever. When they finally get to the roof, they are so together. They are so like ready to play. And three of the performances on the roof are the ones that end up on the album. I'm, I, it blows me away that, um, that they got album quality recordings, performances, I should say, um, it, during that rooftop show. That's just an, amazing that what we hear on the record is absolutely live. I think it's just incredible. Well, well, that shows also, you, go ahead, bro. I was going to say, that shows you how far ahead they were, too, yeah. with the idea of recording yeah. and mixing. And I loved watching, you know, how they fiddle around with gadgets. Like when he brings in the bass guitar, that's also a guitar. Um, right. You know, it's like how how much like little kids they became when that yeah. stuff happens. You know, yeah. and the fact that they were always sort of looking at technology. Yeah, I thought was interesting. Yeah. So I think the interesting thing is I, I that's one of the things I actually don't know a ton about. I've not really researched like what was done on there, and for some reason yeah. in my head. I had this idea that they had done like a complete show. They were just, they just played the same five songs over and over. Right? Yeah, they exactly. Played them like three or four times a, uh, a piece. Uh, and they did that for 45 minutes to get the best take. And it yes. truly was just a recording session. It was yeah. just on the roof and not in the studio. Right. Um, I was listening to uh, one of the talk shows on, on Sirius XM volume. It's a talk show all about music. And so I was listening to one of the shows today, and Alan Light says that he, I heard the song Get Back more times this weekend than I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think that's pretty funny. I also want to talk about Billy Preston. You know, he walks into the studio and it changes the mood. It changes. Part of it is that you know his parts so well from hearing these songs for your whole life that they don't sound complete until you hear him sitting down at the electric piano and playing. So, you know, you hear Get Back and a couple of other things and you're like, it sounds good. Billy sits down and you're like, now it's that song that I know. And he he just blows me away. I think he's an amazing guy. And just to see how much fun he had just hanging out with the Beatles and playing these songs. I mean, he came in basically just to say hi. And they said, hey, you want to play on a couple of songs? And he was there for the next two and a half weeks. Yeah. That's unbelievable. So, yeah. Uh, and the funny thing is the way it's shot. And I don't know if it just is happenstance or what. But I don't think he has a single like he doesn't say a single thing in the in it. He's just smiling the whole time, right? Every time it shows him, he's just like agreeing with whatever's being said, or, you know. And there's there's one scene where he, uh, uh, they're like, well, "What's that chord? What's that chord?" And he's like, "Oh, it's it's this." And he like yeah. he's like showing the Beatles how to play things on a piano. And yeah. I think at one point John says, "This electric piano is out of tune," and he goes. Electric pianos can't go out of two. Right. And John's like, um, oh, okay, and just walks off. Yeah, yeah. No one's going to argue with Billy Preston, right? Um, <laughs> it's, it's great that he's sort of like the one guy that can shush them. You know? Yeah. He, he equally shushes everybody, which I think is great. Um, I love he he just like what this past week or well it was a couple of weeks ago but it just got broadcast this, uh, last week as him being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right before this film comes out. And I think that you see, this is just one, I mean, this is the thing that most people know about him. He had a couple of like big hits in the seventies, but people know him as the Beatles guy. He almost was the fifth Beatle. This is one little tiny chapter of his career. Um, but I think it's so fun to see that, that chapter really come to life. He was also uh, in the uh, the Beatles rock opera with the Bee Gees. Um, That's right. He and, sure and he was. Sang, he, he sang "Get Back." That yes, he did. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh wow! Yeah, I forgot that. I was listening to uh, radio today, and the Aerosmith version of "Come Together" um, came on, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, there's that. There's that film." <laughs> so one thing that got me is in the mythos of the Beatles is Mal Evans, who was their road manager. Oh yeah. Man, did they run poor Mal Evans <laughs> to death? Uh, they're just like, uh, I'd like to see someone do a cut of every time someone said, Hey Mal. Um, <laughs> and it was like, but I mean, he was there, right? He was so yeah. instrumental in everything they did. He was the one writing the lyrics down as they were just coming up with stuff. Yeah. He was the one like, Hey, get a hammer. They literally said, hey, Mal, get a hammer yes. and, you know, uh, do this thing for Maxwell Silverhammer. Yeah. And uh, like and he's just uh, he's like, uh, hey, Mal, can I get cauliflower instead of whatever? <laughs> and, and it was everything. I mean, Mal Evans was just <laughs> run to death. And you know, there's a lot of things that he uh, said that he always felt like he was unappreciated. And and I guess I can kind of see that uh, sure. he was such a vital part. And it yeah. shows, right? I mean, he's there. He is there in almost every scene of this movie. Mal Evans yeah. is there. Yeah. Yeah. And for him to, I'm sure he did feel underappreciated because I mean, he was doing everything. Everything, yeah. And he had been there with them since since the beginning, I think. At least early on, right? Yeah. And, yeah. 
and he just just that to see him kind of do those things and see how how important he was is unfortunate that, that he didn't get more um, agreed kind of respect in that if Epstein's around for all of this they have a plan they have the shooting schedule it's all it's all pre-made yeah it's like you shoved this t- you know it's it's like they just literally part of the reason they could be as famous as they were when they started because Epstein pretty much was running so much everything on time it's just basically they had to show up and be on right and then Epstein's gone and suddenly they had to do the work you know yeah uh, it's kind of like when you're in school and you have a substitute teacher for you know um all the time and then the real teacher shows up and you actually have to do the homework you know it's kind of like that um and I just thought how different this album would have sounded and how different the Beatles would have sounded if Epstein had gone so, so yeah. soon. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And then you know, that's, that's a melancholy that sort of hangs over the over the film. It's not really talked about. Yeah. Um, but it's it's sort of this thing that's hanging around, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's interesting because you do see that. And you see the fact that uh, one thing that I kept thinking about is like, why wasn't this plan going into it? Like, why didn't they have this whole thing worked out before day one, but they just start filming? Yeah. I don't know. We'll just figure it. It'll emerge. Right. Yeah. And um, I, I think you, I don't, I think in my mind, the Beatles was, were bigger than that. They had people, they had this stuff, they, that, but they didn't really let that happen. They wanted things mm. to emerge. And I, I th- like that would never happen now. Right. I don't think there's any, anyone now that's, that's that big. That would just yeah. go in and be like, let's do a TV special. Well, what's it going to be about? Ah, we'll figure it out. The thing that surprises me is that when they uh, finally do abandon the idea of doing a television special, they keep filming. And they think, well, maybe we'll use all this to, to make our third film because we still owe one to the studio. But the fact that they didn't have a plan for the television thing whatever it was that it was going to be and when they ended that they just said well we'll just keep the cameras around let's just keep filming i'm i mean you would you would only get half of this story had they said you know we don't need this camera crew anymore we're so fortunate to have as much as we have that's an interesting point too is how much like there's 50 50 or 60 almost 60 hours of this and we get eight and a half like what didn't make it into the like and and that's what I, I keep asking myself. Like Peter Jackson, I think has said that he wanted to tell this happy story, and and I, I do question him. Like, is there is there things that just didn't make it into the film? Oh, uh, yeah. because it didn't feed into that. Or are there those bad moments that right? You know, um, and maybe we're just seeing the eight hours of good moments, right? Exactly. Well, and also Ringo and George or Ringo and Paul are, are producers. So how much of that? How much were they active in being producers? You know, um. right? Um, I saw okay on the rooftop. Um, what song is it that they're about to do? And John's like, um, I don't know that I'll remember the lyrics. And this kid comes up and holds the lyrics up for John to read off of, like he's his own like teleprompter. Um, I, somebody uh, on one of the uh, <clears throat> Facebook groups that I'm in today posted somebody's done an interview with that kid that held the lyrics wow i know isn't that amazing i haven't got to read it yet i just saw it before we came on to do this but i'm looking forward to reading that (laughs) um i I think something that we should talk about too is on is the way that uh 
the way that uh, rooftop concert is edited is um, astounding. Uh, where you see all these yes. different views, not just of the of the rooftop, yes. but also of what's going on in the offices and on the street, yes. and specifically when the police start coming in. And it is it is an interesting. I, I think as much as it's an interesting history of the Beatles, it tells you a lot about like policing and that area of London during mm. the, during 1969. It was it seemed to, I don't I've never been there. I don't know, but I imagine it seemed to be a pretty posh area of uh of london so uh um, yeah. uh so i mean there's a lot of people that were like those noisy kids up on the roof uh you know they're disrupting the way things work um mm -hmm. and it was 45 minutes it actually didn't seem like it was that loud uh other than it was the beatles so anything the yeah. beatles do they're gonna bring a crowd right yeah um and the fact that like all these people what i loved are the people even some of the older people they were like yeah it's the beatles we love them yeah, uh, and then some other people be, and then there's one where it's this one young kid who's just like, "No, they don't need to be doing that." I know, uh, and <laughs> that was hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. And the one older woman who was like, <clears throat> "Well, they've just disturbed my nap. I don't like it." <laughs> <laughs> I want to see an interview with that lady. <laughs> I don't think that lady's still. Alive. I don't think she's still um, around, <laughs> though, sadly. <laughs> Oh, that was so funny. But it was really interesting to see those three different perspectives. And the one guy that came into the office, well, first of all, as cops and whoever else are coming into the office and how the receptionist and a couple of other people are trying to deflect them. Oh, I'm so sorry. They're recording a new album. And, you know, it, it's not soundproofed very well. That was just unbelievable. But then the one guy who comes in and he's like, I own the building and I want to know what all this racket is going on on my building and, and who all these people are. And the girl says, there's, there's nobody on, on the building. And he says, my building is the one across the street where the, the extra camera and a couple of recordists were. And he's like, what are those people doing on my building? <laughs> and she goes, I don't know anything about those people, sir. <laughs> and I wonder how much of that they were like, they were told to just like, look, if anyone comes, you just deflect. You exactly. Do whatever. Exactly um, right. And then how much of it is just like they were just used to doing that because it mm -hmm. was the Beatles and they work for the Beatles and who knows what they're doing. I, it, there's an outtake on Abbey Road from the on the deluxe version where someone's like complaining, yeah. right? And they're uh, like, first of all, can you imagine being the guy complaining, saying the Beatles are too loud? Yeah. Uh, but apparently everyone does on this, and it's that same thing. It's just like they're the Beatles, but. You know, hindsight's 50 50, I guess. I also wonder if 2020, 50 50, 2020. <laughs> wow. <laughs> hindsight is whatever you want yeah, it to be. Sure. Um, I also wonder if when the police come in and they're like, you know, we've had noise complaints and you have to stop this or we're going to start arresting people, they never really do anything. I wonder if even they were like, we know this is the Beatles. We don't want to have to you know, get in their faces and, you know, break up their thing. But, you know, George was even talking about, wouldn't it be really cool if, you know, the film ends with us being arrested and dragged away and all this kind of stuff and nothing happens. They finish their show and that's it. Well, that's, that's another one of those like foreshadow pieces, right? Where, yeah. uh, where they talk about that early on there. Like, wouldn't it be great if they, the police came and dragged us off? Exactly. You know, in, in episode exactly. one. Right. Yeah, it's, um, it's fascinating. Also, when George and Paul, I mean, um, John and Paul go to the cafeteria or wherever it is 
to have their little, you know, one-on-one headbutt, which was also the most polite headbutt I've ever seen. Um, and the, the narration, the caption on the film said, you know, no cameras were allowed, but, you know, these little recording devices were snuck in there. That's amazing. I mean, that's, I, that's kind of an invasion. <laughs> I think one of the things that people uh, are saying now, people are beginning to say this, uh, and Michael Lindsay Hogg did a very good job directing this film. And yeah. I think Peter, Peter Jackson even is like, look, 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 don't give me all the credit for this. I'm just editing this, this these pieces together. Yeah. Uh, but those things were amazing. He did such a good job directing yeah. that and putting that together. Yeah, uh, and I hope he gets the credit he deserves because he did a fantastic job. Yeah, I think he will. Yeah, I think there should be a two, maybe two and a half hour condensed version for the more casual fan. Because I just don't think that everyone's going to sit around and watch eight and a half hours of the Beatles tuning guitars and trying to figure out a chord yeah. structure for a song and stuff. You know, I think that there should be like a smushed together like a little bit more you know uh briskly edited version for the more casual fan and let those of us who sit around and do podcasts about these kind of things have the eight and a half hour version and you know satisfy both parts of the audience i love the fact that like you get to see how songs are made yes yes you know like how pop songs are made yes it's just great right and at the same time, I have I've I've seen on Facebook people I know saying I I, I just couldn't sit through it. You know, it was just too long and self indulgent and blah blah. Well, you're not you're a Beatles fan, but you're not, and I get that because I think people yeah. sort of have their own preconceptions of what this is going in. Yeah, you know, um, yeah. and it's a commitment. I mean, you're like, okay. I'm- At the same time, though, I have been in lots of bands. And it, it was really, really satisfying for me to see that even the Beatles, you know, get bored with having to, you know, tune a guitar and having to wait for the one guy to figure out what part he's going to play. And, you know, all the downtime that comes in when you're doing this kind of thing where you just sit around waiting for something or someone to do whatever it is they have to do you know, you would do eventually get to that part where you get on the rooftop and you play phenomenally well, but the rehearsing and the perfecting and the composing is so tedious. And I was, I really appreciated that the Beatles struggle with it too. It's not just, you know, stupid amateur schlubs like me, you know, and, and people that I've known who sit around in bands in their garage who struggle with this kind of stuff. The fucking Beatles struggled with it, too. And yeah. I, I was like, dude, I could be a Beatle. <laughs> I could never be a Beatle. I, I think also is how how technical the Beatles were, right? I mean, yeah. maybe not all of them, and maybe not all the time, but they had a pretty good working knowledge of the way that studio worked, especially George. Yeah. Uh, and, and like George was lending his own equipment and were, uh, lending, uh, were put, he went to put the help, put the studio together. Yeah. Like I, I, I like that, like that gearhead mentality because I'm kind of like that. I like to put things together. I like that. And I like to know that the Beatles didn't just walk in and expect things to work. I mean, they still had their texts. They still had, you know, they relied on, uh, John's, uh, quite a bit. They, they had a pretty good working knowledge of what that was like. Final thoughts, 
Yeah, it was, you know, going into this, because you've had a huge buildup, right? And we had a huge buildup that was interrupted. And then it's coming out this year and then pushed back. So it's like this thing that you've been waiting for and waiting for and waiting for. And usually when you have something that's pushed off this this much and and you keep going through all this, it either becomes not worth your time or the payoff isn't what it's, you know, what it's billed as. It's everything they said it was. You know, if mm-hmm. you're a Beatle fan, you know, yeah. the, and, and the thing is, too, this is it. There's not much left. You know, I mean, this is now everything out into the world. You know, yeah. there's no, it's not like Prince where there's like just so much stuff in the vault. Right. And I mean, this is, this is most, I mean, we're not going to get very much more video of them. We're not going to get, you know, a behind the music with VH1. I mean, this is pretty, this is pretty much what we're going to get. And it's more enlightening in than most of the other documentary stuff that's been made by just letting them sort of do their thing. Right. Right. There was some talk about, um, I've seen some things where it's indulgent and maybe self indulgent of uh, Peter Jackson to put so much, but I think it, it goes to say that exactly what you were saying, he is a fan and he's like, look, if I don't put this out there, it may never get out. So I'm going to put as much as I possibly can as a resource uh, in this. And so people will see this because originally it was six hours and then mm-hmm. it just became eight and a half, right? He put an extra hour of uh, two and a half hours in there. Um, so I think that's, that's fantastic that he was able to do that and was allowed to do that um, uh, because there was a six hour cut that was approved essentially. And he's yeah, like, oh, let's right. see what else I can put in. So I think that's super <laughs> important. And, and he's got, great. The, Oh, and he's got the access to, you know, yeah. Two of the Beatles and one of, and and widows. You know, they don't all agree on uh, allowing access. All right, right, right. That's true. And getting getting Yoko, I think, is a huge yeah thing not to not, not to necessarily deny about because she is very guarded with that legacy. Yeah, and and what's really interesting is there's not been I haven't seen any interviews with her. I haven't seen any interviews with Paul uh, since it's come out. Uh, I haven't seen yeah. anything with uh, Ringo. I saw something with Ringo from like about two or three weeks ago, mm. but um, but they've all been pretty mum on this, uh, which is interesting. Peter Jackson's doing all of the press. Um, yeah. So, uh, but my final thoughts, I, I just have to echo what, uh, what Rob said. It's, it's, we have this treasure trove given to us as, um, as as fans of this which seems weird it's just like well you're just watching a bunch of guys make stuff but no you're 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 seeing get back appear out of nowhere i mean it just the song didn't exist and then it did and we see it from the very second that it becomes a german of an idea and i don't know if i ever thought that would be something that really i know was was great but seeing that yeah. And then seeing how, you know, someone uh, someone said, hey, with Let It Be, what if you do da 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 you know? Like, and you add that in. That wasn't even part of the song. And I think it was Jeff Johns is, like, doing it. And he's, yeah. like, uh, um, and that wasn't even part of the song. You see these little things that have become part of the mythos. Right. And we see it at its infancy. Uh, yeah. And that's, like, this real powerful uh, that we're given. Yeah. Like, we're given this this. Uh, not, uh, almost holy book, this holy text of this. You, you get to see this; these things exist, like right. come into the ether, and it's just fascinating to see the creative process and the creative process from someone uh, from a group that is just so 
uh, I, I'm a big Paul McCartney fan, so seeing him just like these songs just roll off his tongue and yeah. roll off his, his fingers yeah. playing, it's fascinating. I've and never I, seen anything like it. And I love the fact that you see them do songs, you're like, oh, he's going to use that later. You know, it's kind of, that, that's yeah. kind of cool, you know, all for. My final thought is, um, this is something that I've said a couple of times over the last couple of days is that um, from, from this point on, I will never listen to let it be the same way again, mm -hmm. because, you know, having seen that album come into fruition from basically nothing um, changes everything about all the way that I've always listened to that album. It has a, completely new meaning to me at this point it you know you you can't hear any of those songs and not think of the way that it originated because of the footage that we've now seen but my, my final thought is that it only just really occurred to me as we're doing this discussion that i will never listen to abbey road the same way again because we saw the origins of it, you know, half of that album in this film. Mm -hmm. You know, we got to see George working on something. We got to see Maxwell come together. We saw Paul rehearsing Oh Darling. Um, we saw uh, Ringo, you know, playing for the very first time for one of the other Beatles, Octopus's Garden. I mean, we got a mention. I, I don't think we ever heard any of it, but we, we got a mention of Mean Mr. Mustard. We got it. We heard a little bit of Polythene Pam. We, there was so much of Abbey Road that was already happening as they're working on this. So basically, this has changed my entire perspective on the final two Beatles albums. And mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, I can't wait to listen to them again to listen to them in a new way. So there you go. So, Rob, where can folks see and hear more of you if they want to see and hear more of you, which I'm sure they do? Well, I would like to say you will see more of me on uh, future editions of this very program. Yes, you with, will. Um, with the gifted and talented uh, Anthony Williams yes. as well. Um, England Sweetheart. Um, uh, so, yeah, I do a radio show on KDHX in St. Louis. That's every Wednesday night. It's called Juxtaposition. It's streaming online, though. So if you're on a Saturday and you're not doing anything and you want to fall asleep, you can listen to it. <laughs> Um, I also do some stuff for needcoffee.com and, uh, I've been writing my, uh, Dr. Who blog again for anglotopia.net and yep. I'm going to do a couple other things for them. Some book stuff and film stuff in the coming weeks as well. Cool. 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 So Ashley, what else do you have going on Buster? I don't have uh, a lot going on. You can find me, um, on Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, islier.com or islier at is I Z L E A R. Um, and, uh, I don't do much on it uh, these days. I am working on a, a role-playing game called The Gun Belt. So if you are oh, interested awesome. in, in a game, uh, if you are interested in role-playing games, uh, this one particularly is about uh, cowboys and dinosaurs and robots. Uh, yes. That, uh, that takes place on a corporation world um, out in the um, uh, – on a different planet. So uh, that one uh, hopefully, hopefully will go to Kickstarter next year. So uh, I do a Star Trek podcast. Uh, it comes out on Mondays. We've been reviewing the recent episodes, the newest episodes of Discovery and talking about some topics uh, from legacy shows. And um, that's, that's what I've got going on. So um, I hope you guys had a great time. Talk Thank you so much for joining me and talking about this. 
uh, especially you, Ashley. I have been waiting for the past year plus to talk to you about this documentary. I'm so glad we finally got the opportunity to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. The worst part about it not being a, a theatrical release is I was going to come down and watch this with you. Oh, uh, man. When it, when it came down. But um, but in lieu of that, we get to do this. And that, yeah. that's, uh, that's equally as fun. Rob and I will be back uh, next time with... Um, I don't even know what our next topic is going to be, but we will have Anthony Williams with us again. He was unable to uh, watch the documentary this weekend, so he didn't have anything to contribute to tonight's show, sadly. But Ashley, I'm so glad you were able to join us. Um, so everybody take care. Have a great week. Uh, we will see you very, very soon. Take care and go listen to more Beatles. Take care, everybody.